Hey, it's Alexander J. Fun NBA show today with Yuri, Jules, and Tom. We talk about some interesting coaching changes we might see in the offseason. Tom has an amazing eight-minute-long Celtics rant, and a special guest joins the show. The Oracle, up next. All right, welcome back. The NBA Recap Show on the Mojo Sports Network. It's me, your host, Alexander J. And with me today, three great basketball minds from the mean streets of Melbourne. He's a sports facility owner and a fantasy team fanatic. Julian Balthasar joins us on the show. Julian, how are you, mate? Good, thanks, guys. Looking forward to talking playoffs. Next up, you might have heard him on 91.3 Sport FM, DRN1 Sports Wrap in Perth, or on the AFL show on the Mojo Sports Network. It's our mini basketball encyclopedia. Yuri Bilsic, how are you? Good, Alex. And yeah, the playoffs have been riveting thus far and the Heat are doing what they're doing yet again, conquering all the doubters. Shout out to you and Julian as the um, hosts, the co-hosts, I should say, on a special episode. You two are working on the AFL show moving forward, I believe. So um, shout out to our footy conscious listeners there. And last, but certainly not least, it's Mr. Tom Dev. How are you, Tom? I've been better, but I'm here. And we'll uh, we'll talk (laughs) basketball reluctantly. We appreciate you. If you if you want to talk, mate, you can uh, reach out to us. You know where to find us. Poor Celtics, man. Look, uh, conference finals are well and truly underway in the NBA. We're two games into the Miami Celtics series and three into the Lakers-Denver series. It's just wrapped up. Um, Tom, I might start with you. It's been a rough week for Celtics fans. But when we talk about the most important news story of the week, uh, what's front of mind for you? Yeah, I'm going to try and take some joy out of this week. So, of course, you know, we did the podcast last Monday and we and Celtics knocked out the 76ers. Um, and, you know, a couple of days later, they fired Doc Rivers, which wasn't really surprising, in my opinion, was the right call. I mean, he blew that 3-2 lead. He got blown out in Game 7. And Eric Spolster is showing just how easy it is to coach against this Celtics team. Um, and when you look at Doc Rivers' resume, I don't think any coach in the history of the NBA has done less with more. I sort of whipped up just a quick, like, Doc Rivers all-time starting lineup. And it's point guard Chris Paul, shooting guard Ray Allen, small forward Kawhi Leonard, power forward Kevin Garnett, center MVP and Bede. Then off the bench, you can have Paul Pierce, Paul George, Blake Griffin, James Harden, Rondo, Tracy McGrady. And it can just keep going. Um, And so, you know, he's won one championship, made the finals twice, and outside of that has struggled to make it past the second round any other time. So I don't really understand why there's rumors that he might actually get another job after this one. I mean, he was awful at the Clippers, wasn't very good at this 76ers team. So I don't know. Um, do you guys think he should be getting another chance in the league? Or oh, I think he's got a record something like um, he's had 10, he's had five more losses than any other coach in game seven history. I think he's got 10 losses total. It's something ridiculous. Yuri or Julian, I don't know if you've got pegged him for anywhere else in the league or do you want to see him move to Maybe. the Maybe potentially, I don't know about with Milwaukee because most of the teams Dockers coach have been veteran laden teams, apart from the Orlando Magic. I think going back to 99 2000 when he won coach a year that year, and then also in 2000 2001, he didn't have much to work with with that Magic team and still steered into the seventh spot in the playoffs that year where they lost to the Bucks in four games back when the playoff format in the first round was the best of five. and that team as well, Orlando, in the 01 season. That, of course, Tracy McGrady, who came over as a free agent from the Toronto Raptors. They had Grant Hill, who lasted all but four games with that reoccurring ankle injury again. And also the summer prior to, Tim Duncan was basically one foot in the door 
until David Robinson convinced him to remain in San Antonio and what could have been that year for the Orlando Magic again. Who knows? So I think you have to give Doc credit in that way, although that was a long time ago. Yeah, it's like 13 but, years ago. <laughs> yes, it's a long time ago. It's two decades ago. But again, as Tom laid out perfectly, when you have that much superstar veteran-laden talent on your team and only to deliver one championship, it sort of raises question marks in a way. What more could you, can you do in terms of your coaching strategies and also in crucial moments with certain lineups in a way to elevate your side over the line? And, of course, Boston, it wasn't easy alone in that championship year in 2008. Atlanta pushed them to seven games. Of course, the outstanding LeBron James-Paul Pierce battle in Game 7 where LeBron had the 45 and Pierce had the 41 points and the Celtics just got over the line in that seventh and deciding game. And Detroit, too, was another tough one in six games and, of course, being the Lakers in six. But yet again, I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens with Doc this summer. Well, let's stay with you, Yuri, because I know you wanted to talk about another coaching position with your beloved Milwaukee Bucks. Go ahead there and then we'll move to Julian. Yeah, so there's actually news that did come out earlier, or late last week, actually, Alex, too, that Kelvin Sampson, who used to be the Oklahoma coach mm. back in the NCAA, I think it was back in 1998, and he made this comment, and I was watching the Paul Pierce Beyond the Glory documentary a week ago, and so they were playing Oklahoma, I can't remember exactly which stage of it it was in the tournament, but Pierce absolutely had a blinder. I think he rattled in 17 straight points, and they mentioned at the time Sampson, And he basically said along the lines of, please don't play another year, which, of course, Paul ended up declaring himself for the NBA draft that year, 1998. But Samson's record in the NCAA is exemplary. I think it's, by memory, a 70% winning record along those lines. And he was part of Houston's coaching staff from 2011, I'm pretty sure, to 2014. And he has this real defensive mentality mindset where teams – where his teams absolutely buckle down and don't give a lot of easy transition points and they're super hard to play against. And offensively, they like to really push up the tempo. And it's something, of course, Milwaukee, at times they do and then at times they don't. So I think he would be a good fit in a way, but there's so many exceptional candidates out there now for Milwaukee to choose with Monty Williams and Nick Nurse. You could probably say they're the two leading front runners for the Bucks head coaching job. So again, it's going to be fascinating to see where the Bucks approach this with this veteran laden roster. And we know of course during the summer they got many difficult decisions to make with Chris Middleton having his play option. Brooke Lopez basically his four year fifty two million dollar contract expires. Mm. And again, this whole fixing and plotting of where the Bucks do establish their roster moving forward. That's the tricky part in conversation. If you, you okay, I'm going to give you 10 seconds to tell me who you want to be the Milwaukee Bucks coach next year, Yuri. Because it's, it's tough. There's Nick a, Nurse. Yeah, there is a lot of good coaches currently available. I think Nick Nurse is an interesting one. Julian, um, I don't know if you want to stick on coaches or maybe even some GM news, but what's an interesting story from this week in the NBA that appeals to you? I will stick with the coaches theme because I just think um, the the Raptors firing Nick Nurse, I think, started this whole onslaught of coaches just being fired um, and, and turning the NBA into EPL where the, the managers get blamed for the team's <laughs> yeah. performance. 
And uh, it just, yeah, I, I don't know if, if that's caused it or not, but um, Nick Nurse, I think, actually might be a good fit for the Sixers. I know the Bucks, as Yuri said, will benefit from him as well. But I think Nick Nurse, and obviously you know him quite well, Alex, um, being, you know, a proven coach of the year only three three or so years ago, his defensive focus, which would suit the Sixers, um, and, and he's, you know, he, he's known for playing his starters heavy, mivet, heavy minutes. So I don't know. I think, um, yeah, he's an obvious choice for the Sixers, um, but the Bucks might swoop in first. It's an obvious choice for the Sixers. Maybe if James Harden stays, Tom, I know you wanted to talk about James Harden and what might happen with him this offseason too. Yeah, it's interesting because he's got that $35 million player option, which, you know, I mean, he he so graciously took a pay cut going into this season and was paid, I think, 30-something million again. Um, But obviously, he's probably going to be looking for more of that long-term option uh, going forward opposed to just sort of two-year deal, one-year deal. And the, the rumours are he will opt out and the, the strong links um, to him to Houston, uh, which will be interesting. I don't really think that would be a championship team with him, especially since they did not get that number one pick. Um, and, you know, for the Sixers, though, why would they want to re-sign him on a long-term big money deal? I mean, he's constantly injured. His playoff failures just consistently show up and they need to win with Embiid now. I mean, it's kind of underrated, but Embiid is going to be 30 next season. Like, that's <laughs> it's crazy, young. isn't it? You forget he missed those first two seasons with the, uh, the leg injuries, so you do forget he's aging. It's a good point. Yeah, so do they really want to run this team back? I mean, sure, they only had one full season with the with the pair, but, I mean, game six and game seven against the Celtics kind of showed that those two together aren't really going to get you across the line. So for me, I'm out on James Harden if I'm the 76ers, and I know Daryl Morey loves him, but sometimes you've got to put your feelings aside. If they uh, get that cap space from James Harden leaving the side, another interesting possibility might be Damian Lillard. Uh, Portland, not really sure what they'll do as they moved up to the number three pick in the draft. Um, Yuri, I know a little bit of backstory here you wanted to touch on as well, but that Portland number three pick is interesting, isn't it? Yes. So briefly, Alex, too, Portland wants intends to keep Damian Lillard and trade away their number three pick to build, well, to get another superstar to coexist well get pair alongside him, shall I say. And the thing is, though, when you look at how Portland's rebuilt or built a team around Damian Lillard, Alex, the closest that they've got to is basically 2018-2019 when they made the conference finals mm. for the first time since 2000. And, of course, they had CJ McCullum, that use of Nurkic as their centre. Their small forward was Mo Harkless and their power forward was Alfa Rukamini. Those two are exceptional perimeter defenders and at times can chip in offensively. But... They haven't had that third star in a way, like basically back to when Portland were in the conference finals in 2000 when they had Steve Smith, they had Scotty Pippen, of course, they had Rashid Wallace, who basically was the Trailblazers' number one offensive option. They had Arvita Sabonis, they had Mighty Mouse Damian Stoudemire. This is stretching the basketball encyclopedia pretty far, Yuri. So (laughs) it goes back a long way since Portland had an exceptional superstar team, Alex. And what could have been again that season if they have made the NBA finals, they probably will have won the championship. If what have what have happened a year after and then they hadn't imploded after I think it was March third when they beat Golden State and they were forty two and eight and fell down from top of the West down to seventh. Again, those frictions and player clashes and player clashes with coach and et cetera, et cetera, where Mike Dunleavy was in charge was always going to be a real difficult tired to turn around at that time for the Portland Trailblazers. But just going back on with Daniel Lillard and that situation with Portland tending to trade away their number three pick, you almost feel as though I just want to pose a question to all three of you. 
Who do they target Portland, though, to pair alongside Damian Lillard? Because, again, Portland's one of those small market teams. That's tough. Um, this was one of the things we talked about doing in a couple of weeks is taking uh, two teams. So maybe we take Philadelphia and uh, Portland and we break them down in a second episode every week talking about potential moves for the offseason. Um, Tom, do you have anything? Because the only thing I can think of is maybe Embiid wants out, trade the three, rebuild in Philly, but I don't think they do that. If if I'm Portland, I'm doing everything I can to try and convince Jalen Brown that this Celtics mm. team will never get over this edge and just say to them, look, we'll pay you and Lillard for the next few years. We'll give you that that big juicy contract. Come here and look, will the Celtics want pick three? Probably not, but they might be able to work out a three-team trade for the way of the Celtics to get an asset to, in return that can help them compete now. But that's the, basically the only real sort of player that I can see that they need and would fit their system that is kind of in a gettable situation at the moment. Yeah, that's a tough one, Yuri. Mm. Anyway, anyway, moving on, um, I don't want to stick on the words Jimmy Butler for too long because I can see Tom visibly shake in his office. Uh, but another really interesting story, and I don't know if you guys caught it this week, was on the Zach Lowe podcast. Uh, he told a story about um, catching up with the Spurs GM, R.C. Buford, after they won the number one pick again this year. And Zach Lowe tells a really interesting story about um, how RC was sitting in his office the day they found out they were able to draft Tim Duncan back in 1997. And he was sitting in a blue leather chair and he dubbed it his lucky blue chair. Um, and he sat in it for years and years and years and then gifted it to his daughter when she went to college like 15 years later, right? Well, guess what? This year he comes back, day of the draft lottery, and there's a brand spanking blue chair in his office that he hasn't seen for years. And he said he knew that he was getting Victor Wembanyama. That's a fantastic story. So just in case anyone out there missed that one. Um, okay, performances of the week. And Tom, I want to start with you because you've got a couple to choose from. Um, in Celtics, you could pick Jay- uh, Jason Tatum, 30 points, but didn't score a field goal in the fourth quarter. Uh, what's your performance of the week from this week in the NBA playoffs? Yeah, I'm going to save Celtic talk when we talk about the... Uh- the conference finals as a whole. Hold it all in, mate. I'll hold, yeah, I'll hold it all in for the moment. But for performance of the week, I've gone with uh, Jamal Murray in game two, uh, which I was just uh, I was shocked by, really, because you do see it occasionally where his players playing a bit slowly and then explodes in the fourth. But to do what he did, I mean, he finishes he finished with 37 points, 10 rebounds, five assists, four steals, which is an elite stat line for any player. When you break down his fourth quarter, 23 points, six from seven from the field, four from five from three, and the Lakers only scored 24 points themselves. And not only is that an impressive stat line, Jokic didn't score in the fourth. If he doesn't have this in the fourth, Lakers win that game. They go up, they go 1-1, bring it back home, and maybe today's game has a bit of a different outcome. But I, I'm, you know, I didn't think Murray was going to be like this, this playoffs. I mean, we saw him in the bubble, and it was bubble Murray, bubble Murray. Is he really that good? He then got injured with the ACL missed a season and a half and two postseasons, and he's come in and he's done that. And he's arguably just as important in this series as Jokic has been. And I think that's why, I mean, that's why his performance of the week for me. Yeah, that's um really quickly. I don't know if you saw the stat for King of the Fourth, Jamal Murray. He scored 20 points in the fourth quarter of a playoff game for the fourth time in his career. There's only two players in NBA history who have done that twice, and he's now done it four times. Uh, Julian, your performance of the week is... Okay, it's obviously the very obvious one, which was Jokic in game one, 34 points, 21 rebounds, 14 assists. And it takes me back to when I, the first NBA game I played on PlayStation 2 it was, was um, NBA 2000, 
three NBA Live two thousand three, and I remember creating this player who was ninety nine overall, and like you know. Being my favorite player, I would just score with him, rebound with him, and assist with him. And I thought this line of, you know, 30 points, 20 rebounds, 20 assists, it's not possible. And then in real life, and then Jokic pulls out 34 points, 21 boards, 14 assists, and two blocks. And it's like, oh my gosh, is this actually a thing? So um, I think what we're seeing is just because he does it so often, where we don't take the time to appreciate what we're actually seeing here, which is just it's something that is actually quite unbelievable if you want to break down the numbers from. And then to make it even more um, amazing is the fact that he's a center as well. Um, is he though? <laughs> he's playing <laughs> the point guard of the pick and roll. That's true. Jamal I saw him driven the ball just before. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it's incredible what he's doing. And uh, I thought I wrote a piece saying that you know AD might be able to stop him and tame him, and of course he couldn't. And now they're three and zero up, and um, I don't know who stops him to be honest. Yuri, your performance of the week. Who am I to be? It's going to be a completely different one. And it's from the Heat Celtics game too, Alex. And when Miami did need an injection of spark, especially offensively when Boston hit those early threes, Caleb Martin, who yeah. right throughout the playoffs and right throughout when he's been given the start too during the regular season, has always seemed to have delivered. And again, he chipped in with the 25 points in game two, had a series number of drives to the basket, which really caught the Celtics on the back foot. He hit that important three as well in game one in the baseline corner. But he always seems to be so super dependable when they take Kevin Love out. I think, I think it's usually about four minutes left in the first. And Martin plays a considerable chunk of the minutes. And whenever, again, Miami needs him defensively too to take the offensive charge, he always seems to step up there. And again, I think Boston have got more problems than having to contend with, of course, Jimmy Buckets Butler. Bam I'm shuddering Adebayo. again. <laughs> Bam Adebayo had an exceptional game too. Basically almost had a triple-double in itself. And But Caleb Martin's that other option which they can lean to when Max Drews' shot isn't falling. And of course, it has been falling and it did in game one, I'm pretty sure it was in the second quarter. But right throughout too, I think as well, Alex, maybe at first didn't take too much notice in a way. But he's actually, in terms of his offensive production – has always been solid in a way. And I never thought that at all when he first came to Miami. I always thought he was a defensive stopper. But when teams, don't, yes, when, when teams don't pay attention in terms of, you know, basically in terms of just in terms of their scouting report, he always seems to always find a way to contribute and contribute at the most important times. And, he did that once again in game two. He did it as well in game two of the Knicks series where he scored 22 points. Did it a few times as well in the Bucks series. And I think this is also one part I want to touch on too, Alex. And I think Coach Eric Spolstra did think about inserting him into the starting lineup ahead of game two. But I don't think they really need to in a way. They can play Kevin Love those 15 to 20 minutes and play Caleb Martin 30 minutes as he mm. did in game two, playing 32 all up. So they don't lose too much in a way in terms of those rotations with him and Kevin Love. And again, it's only just another conundrum for the Celtics to face. I'm a bit miffed because I had Caleb Martin game two as my performance of the week. I thought for sure someone would take Jimmy Butler either game one or game two. Game one, Butler had that 35-point game. And then game two, he's just got 
He got poked. Again, we'll leave that for a minute. Um, Bam Adebayo might be in my backup performance of the week in game two. He had 22.17 rebounds. He didn't shoot particularly well, but he pulled out several key rebounds that were in Grant Williams' hands, in Al Horford's hands. And it really struck me as, geez, if he's not there, um, I don't know what they do. But this might be a good segue. Um, Tom, are you ready? Let it all out. It's a safe space. The Celtics Heat Conference Finals. 2-0 to the Heat. Um, I'll let you take the segment away, mate. All right. Before I before I open up on a massive rant, I just I just want you guys to I want you guys to tell me if you know what uh, this this signal means. And, and for the listeners, <laughs> for the listeners, I'm making a T with my hands. Do you, do you guys know what this means? I think I might. Does that mean I could qualify yeah. as a coach? I think it's a timeout signal, Tom. Yeah. Congratulations. Would you like to be the Celtics head coach? Because clearly, you know what you're doing, and he doesn't. Because why won't he call a timeout? It, I, I am so infuriated by this. The Celtics are up by nine at halftime in game one. The Heat open up the third on an 11 to five run. The Celtics were not getting good looks anywhere. The only good look they were getting were Marcus Smart because they decided after he had 10 assists in the first quarter, first half to leave him open and let him shoot. Of course, Marcus Smart's going to shoot it. He made one three, but other than that, nothing. And instead of calling a timeout when the Heat were going on this massive run, Joe Mazzulla was just standing there going, ah, play through it, play through it. And he did this all throughout the start of the season. And it worked against Charlotte. And it worked against Detroit. Because you can pick you can pick apart those you know lottery teams. It's not going to work against the Heat. And we didn't call the timeout. Like, you know, Kevin Love went up and hit a transition three. And that's, that, that's literally a red flag. That's when you call a timeout. <laughs> I've never not seen it happen. You call timeouts when someone hits a, tra- a transition three instead of going for a layup. Because that's when the momentum has just completely shifted. Did not call a timeout. Heat then continued and went on a 10-7 run. He finally calls a timeout. Then he got, and then Jimmy Butler comes back from the break and hits the uh, and one free throw to go up by one. Heat finished the third, 46-25, to 25, and they finished the yeah. quarter up 12. Con- yeah, contrast that to Eric Spolstra. Celtics open up the fourth on a 7-0 run. run. 94 seconds into the qu- quarter, timeout. Done. And we never really got close after that. There were a few moments where we stopped them scoring late in that fourth quarter, uh, but we couldn't score because our offense completely stalled. Now, another question for you all. Who do you guys think the Celtics' best player is? Oh, I'm ready to go on this one, but Julian, you go first. uh, Well, I've been saying this for a while, Jalen Brown, (laughs) and I'm going to put myself on mute after that. (laughs) Yuri? Jason Tatum. Oh, it could be Jalen Brown, Tom. Um, Tatum's got the highest highs, but I might go Jalen Brown. I get what you like, but in these first two first two games, it's Tatum without a doubt. So why is he not getting the ball in the fourth that's quarter? True. Yeah, that's very the true. Commentators were saying this. I'm sitting on my couch at home, ready to pull my hair out because Tatum is standing in the corner doing nothing, and they're not even trying to get him the ball. And it's not like it was like Philly game six where he wasn't doing anything until the fourth quarter. He was the best player and he was our best offensive option, but they did not get in the ball. And the problem with Tatum is if you don't get in the ball for a long period of time, he goes cold. And then he went cold and then he had some of the most horrendous turnovers in that fourth quarter. And like I said in the podcast last week, what what's going to happen is if these games get close, the Heat are going to win because the Celtics cannot play in the clutch. And this is what happened in game one. Um, and, you know, Credit to the Heat role players. I I did not expect them to play this well in in two games, and I, I you know the Milwaukee Bucks Twitter has infiltrated the Celtics Twitter, and it's quite funny. They're 
They got, they got, they're giving us, they're, they're helping us through the five grieving uh, stages. <laughs> they're saying, you know, it's like, Doro, stage, stage two is, you know, bargaining. And, you know, you, you, you can say all you want that these role players won't keep shooting this high, but they will. Because, I mean, game one, Lowry, Martin, Strauss, and Vincent all had 15 points. Like, you're not going to win a game when they're all scoring. The disrespect on Kyle Lowry. I will not let it stand, Tom. He's a role player on this team now. And he, He's and a future to, Hall of Famer. Go and, ahead. <laughs> and, well, credit to him. We give Brogdon all the credit in the world for uh, coming off the bench and fitting his role. Well, look what Kyle Lowry's doing. Uh, he's doing it to perfection. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I like Peyton Pritchard, but why is he playing? Like, why in game one does Joe Mazzula go, oh, hey, let's play the guy who we didn't even trust in the regular season to just come in here. And, you know, oh, it's not like Jimmy Butler's going to switch onto him in every possession. No, of course he is. Like, why not? Then... Uh, Game two, again, Tatum's our best player. I, I, I haven't counted this out, but I think the first six or so Celtic shots did not go to Tatum. He did not even really touch the ball. And it's just when you see what happens in that Philadelphia game seven when he gets going and he gets his shots up, it's it, it, he, he can score 51. So why would you not get him the ball? Instead, Smart was taking shots. Horford was taking shots. Brown was just bricking everything. And yet Celtic still opened up a 12-point lead. Uh, but they blew it, and I was not surprised at all. And again, <laughs> they did not call a timeout until the scores were tied. I mean, look, I'm sorry. In my opinion, if you're up 12, and all of a sudden a 12 point lead is just straight away cut to six, timeout. Just, just, just take a breath. It's what all the coaches do in the league. Like 29 out of 30 coaches call timeout in that position, and I, I don't understand it. But they still had a 12 point lead in the fourth quarter. And at no point was I going, great, the series is 1-1. I'm, I'm sitting on my, on, my, on my couch going, this is ridiculous. And then, and then Grant Williams, I mean, like, honestly, <laughs> like, I, I, I'm honestly not as mad at this as, as some people are. Like, yes, he, he poked the bear, but, I mean, Jimmy Butler's not really – if he'd not done that, Jimmy Butler's still going to do what he's going to do. Yeah. It's Jimmy Butler. And you know what? To Grant's credit – he played good D. Like, Jimmy Butler just hit tough shots. I mean, yeah, that's something I wanted to point out is Grant Williams played good defense. It's just Jimmy Butler just went psycho for 15 to 20 seconds. Exactly. And he's been doing that all year. It's not just on Grant. I mean, if Jalen had been on him or Smart or Tatum or Horford, I think Butler was hitting those shots. That's just how good he's been this last month and a bit. And, you know, what? from the 6-minute 37 mark of the fourth, no one else besides Grant Williams made a field goal in the Celtics. So what he did was dumb. And he really like he didn't need to do it, but you know what? Uh, he, he Jimmy's Jimmy. He's gonna do that. And you know, the real problem was the Celtics' offense. It completely stalled. They couldn't get a good shot. They 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 just did. You know, they ran the same sort of thing where they just drive to the basket, go into a you know contest of three players, and then just give it up. Um, Jalen Brown, you know, you guys may may think he is the best Celtic, but sixteen points on seven to twenty three shooting. Only got to the line twice that whole game and one from seven to three. Uh, Al Horford has been nothing, absolutely nothing this whole series. And really, besides that defense he played on Embiid, he was not impressive on the offensive end against the Sixers. I mean, he had two points, four rebounds. And if you want to go back and watch basically the the biggest play of Bam Adebayo made that game, Horford just let him go through for the box out. I mean, Horford's made a career of boxing out and just let him waltz right through him. And, you know, Inexperienced coach was, was, was costly here. The lineup to close that game probably should have been Brogdon, White, Tatum, Grant Williams, and Rob because they were doing the best. But, you know, look, the optimistic Celtic fan in me wants to say, look, we've looked better on the road the last two postseasons and we play the best for some reason when our back's up against the wall. 
and maybe we'll finally work out how to score on this zone defense because every time the Heat go on the zone, we just we struggle. But the, the depressed, realistic Celtic fan in me is that we're not winning the four of the next five, especially with three of them on the road where the Heat haven't lost a single game. Um, we're being outcoached. The Heat are just tougher. And unless they're up by more than 12 points with two minutes left on the clock, we're not winning the game. And, you know... That's that's me done for the for the, for, the, for the segment. You guys can take you guys can take it away. And uh, I apologize for not talking much about the heat, but I'm sure you guys can cover that. I wish I could give you a hug, Tom. Julian, anything else to say on, on that series? Well, Fester, glad you got that out, Tom. <laughs> you can tell you've been storing that for a while. But um, Jay, I think with the heat and watching every you know both of those games, I, I think they're forced to play like a team because they don't have that many offensive. Of course, I've got a lot of role players that are putting up a lot of good offense but you know they're forced to play like a team with Caleb Martin uh Duncan coming off and, and shooting threes love sometimes pops up with threes and I don't know like I think like the Celtics they rely too much on you know Tatum and he's taken shots at the end that he probably you know they're playing like a team throughout the game and then it gets to the fourth quarter and suddenly they're not sharing the ball around they don't look like the Celtics team they've been the whole time whereas the heat like Jimmy will have the ball in his hands but he'll make the right pass and the right play, and he'll have all the time in the world, whereas the Celtics seem a little bit hesitant and rushed as well. Mm. So, I know, I saw the Heat doing that against the Bucs. I saw them doing it against the Knicks. And just when you think, okay, they've had their two amazing wins being eighth seed, how are they going to do it again? They somehow turn it up again. And, you know, you know, this match, it was Martin. Who's it going to be next game? Is it going to be Gabe Vincent starts knocking down four or five threes? Is it going to be Larry starts scoring again because he had zero points in game two? So I, I think, yeah, because they're forced to, because they don't have that many offensive threats, it's it's somehow working in their favour. And the Celtics need to take note of that when they're, you know, thinking about their chemistry because they share the ball around when everything's good and it's up and you see Smart making amazing plays. Even Jalen Brown's getting an assist. Tatum is edging on, you know, a triple-double. And then suddenly in the fourth quarter where they get a little bit nervous and they they drop the lead, then there's just no sharing the ball around. And it's just like, let's just, you know, let's just all just take our shots and, and play one-on-one. And that's what I think seems to be their problem in the clutch. Yuri, Heat Celtics, go. Yeah, so just... Some of the takeaway from game two, Alex, when Miami were down 40 or 28, I think this was about nine minutes left, then they went to their very effective 2-3 zone and that, in a way, disrupted a lot of Boston's offensive momentum in terms of Celtics having to consume the majority of the shot clock, not getting to the rim and having to take a number of outside jumpers. And, of course, Boston thrives on the three-pointer, but I think it was Eric Spolstra was talking about in the huddle during one of the timeouts. And he said, if we deny them the three ball and have them attack the paint, but also kick it back out because we're closing out those driving lanes, then it's going to force them to take rushed offensive possessions and therefore rushed contested shots. And it was something that brought Miami back into the contest in that opening half. And they did it to Boston in the 2020 bubble. And again, there was a very good video on YouTube by one of the great basketball minds detailing that Miami 2-3 zone and how it worked so effectively against Boston three years ago. And it's worked again yet again, once again. And how Boston combats that 2-3 zone going forward that's going to be tricky because they've got to somehow find those driving lanes earlier before Miami packs the paint and force them into another pass, which they don't want to, and try and draw the foul, try and get backdoor cuts and try and get back screens to somehow eventuate easy buckets in the paint. But that didn't eventuate. And as Julian pointed out exceptionally well too, when it came down to crunch time and the offense got stagnant, the shot clock winded down. They did have multiple 
pick and roll plays. I didn't have multiple passes and swing swing plays, which Boston thrives on. That again completely broke down any hope of them trying to resurrect the Miami defense. Once they get set, Alex, they're hard to penetrate through. Yeah, just two things from me on this um, series is that the Heat are now six win, two losses in the postseason while they're down by 10 or more points. Every other team this postseason is 15 wins, 60 losses. So the Heat really know how to come back and put that pressure on from behind. Um, one other thing for Miami Heat, if you're wondering how Jimmy Butler's gone from a roughly 22-point-per-game score in, in the season to um, high 20s in this postseason, there's a really good video again. We shared out this guy a lot on the pod, um, Thinking Basketball by Ben Taylor, that details uh, Jimmy Butler's got this high-effective percentage shot. So it's a high 40s percent shot from the mid-range, and he uses it as a threat um, with like a varying pace to get the defenses either to bite on it where he can go up and under for a better shot, or if he's just open, he can make a lot of those shots. So he kind of only switches that on midway through the third and he plays a different game in the entire game up until then. Um, Tom, uh, take us home. You've got something more to say, I can tell. I, I'm just I'm just curious. So I have, I have just gotten the uh, notification on the phone from Bleach Report that the Nuggets are now the well and truly heavy favourites in the betting market to win uh, the title, which... You know, as you'd expect, Celtics is still second, which I think is nuts. But they're still the second favorites, despite being two zip down and having to go on the road. Do any of you guys actually believe the Celtics can come back and win this series? Because I certainly don't. But they've got to win Game Three, and that's cliche and cliche in itself. But somehow they have to get off to a fast start and silence the hate crowd because. We've seen during the Knicks series in Game 3 where Miami got rolling and New York's offense completely plummeted that once they absolutely get in that fever pitch too. And just the same thing as well in the Bucks series in Game 3, especially late when Jimmy Butler hit those two clutch shots to trim the margin. It was down to two points with about three minutes left. And you could just feel inside the arena that the noise was just getting louder and louder and louder. And the Bucks players just wilted under the pressure we saw that of course in game five two on the milwaukee's home floor but it's a must given game three because once you're three nil down you're you're fighting leather just to get back in the series itself that's uh it might be a really good point this is something i was going to bring up later but who's the best player left in the playoffs um Tom, I can start with you and then we'll go Julian, Yuri, and then myself because, you know, if you look around, there's some fantastic players left. But who's the best player left? On current form, I've got to go Jokic. He just, he controls the game, which is just crazy. I and mean, sure, he might not score, you know, your 50s like Butler and Tatum have done or he might not even get to 30, but just the way he controls the tempo and, you know, he's not going to want to run up and down the court for 48 minutes. So he just takes the ball and he slows things down. He finds the perfect passes. He gets his men open shots. And Murray doesn't have 37 in game two without Jokic just absolutely dominating the other game one. And he rebounds. He does the fundamentals right. But he also just he's the best passer in the league. And I can't go past Jokic for best player. I'm getting nods from Yuri. Do you feel the same way? I do feel the same way too. I put Jimmy Butler down as mine thus far in the playoffs, Alex. And it's, again, it's insanely difficult to pick who the best player's been because there's just been so many iconic performances that go and go down, say, 10 years later when you look back on the 2023 playoffs and have a look at all the numbers and think, wow, we've just witnessed some of the outstanding playoff performances on the biggest stage yet. And what Jimmy Butler's done, we've spoken about it numerous times, the 
points he averaged in the Bucks series. And although the Knicks series only averaged 24 points on, was it 45% shooting and 11% from deep, but this series again against Boston, the first two games, it only just exemplifies the playoff resume that he's put up right from basically the 2020 bubble itself. And also the other playoff series too, which we can probably talk about too, when he was with the Chicago Bulls and et cetera, et cetera. So that in itself, I think, you have to put him right up there, if not at the top. But yet again, it's it's too hard to pick. Julian, if I'm giving you the choice of Nikola Jokic, Jimmy Butler, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, LeBron James, I'll throw Austin Reeves in there. Anthony Davis on his good second game. Every second game for Anthony Davis, he's legendary. Who's the best player left in the NBA playoffs? I'll be different. I want to say Jimmy Butler because I think if you take Jokic out of the side, you can still make a case that they would beat the Timberwolves with Murray Porter and Gordon. And But I think if you take Butler out of Miami, there's no way they get past him in the first round against the Bucks. So I think with that argument, I'm going to go Jimmy. And what he's doing is just so exciting as well. So, But obviously not taken away from how good Jokic has been. So, so exciting. Unless like, your name is Tom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Poor, poor Tom. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. Tom, we might give you an opportunity to feel better because the Lakers are also down 3-0 in this series. And if you're a Celtics fan, you've got to hate the Lakers. Um, they lost game three right before recording 119-108. to um, They had a lead by one point with less than eight minutes to go and Denver went on a 13-0 lead to take the 10-point. Uh, they never really gave that back. Um, Jamal Murray had 30 points in the first half of game three. Tom, what have you seen in this Lakers-Denver series that makes you feel good inside? Well, you know, it's nice knowing that the Lakers won't be going for... Well, they might break history. I don't think so. But it's nice knowing they won't be going for their uh, 13th title. And yes, 13, <laughs> not 18, not 18. And we, we can debate that all you want, but it's 13. But it uh, doesn't matter. It doesn't look like they'll be going for it anyway. But my concern and what I've been saying all along and why I have not picked the Lakers in a series yet this playoffs is I was worried LeBron's body would just finally let him down. And I was worried Davis wouldn't be able to keep it up. And that's just what's happened. LeBron looked pretty average today. He does not look like he wants to go into the paint whatsoever, which is kind of crazy because the Nuggets don't really have elite rim protection, yet he just wants to pull up from three every single time. Um, I was shocked when he absolutely blew that dunk um, in game two. I I was like, here we go. Here's a signature LeBron James dunk here. Absolutely blew it. Uh, and then when he got that steal in the end of uh, game two, I thought, okay, well, LeBron's going to will them back in here and they might have a chance. Missed it. And it's it's shown. I, I don't think LeBron James has it in him to do this for four rounds. And so I think they will have to look to bring in a third sort of player who can reach that level because Davis clearly can't either because game one, he finished with 40 points and was fantastic. Game two, 18 points couldn't hit a shot and just didn't look like a threat. And it's happened every game, every second game this playoffs. You just don't know which Davis you're going to get. Um, and then like Jokic and Murray, I, I, I thought maybe they might just fail to sort of live up to their regular season, you know, hype that they had, but they've, they've gone beyond expectations. And I think that's a credit to them. You know, you, you look at, you know, some of the other teams around the league, the Grizzlies failed to live up, uh, you know, uh, Giannis and Middleton, like, yes, Giannis had injuries, but they didn't live up to their sort of hype. The Celtics, I, I don't think they've lived up to their hype whatsoever. Um, Sixers, they didn't live up to their hype. But Nuggets, they've come in and they've done exactly as uh, promised. 
Tom, you said the Lakers should look for a third star who can get to the rim. I think Russell Westbrook's a free agent at the end of the season. If you, what do you, Yuri, <laughs> go ahead and talk on this series. <laughs> oh, yeah. So just with game three today, Alex, too. And the Nuggets had their foul troubles as well. Nikola Jokic picked up his fourth foul. Pretty sure it was seven minutes left in the third, too. Bruce Brown was in foul trouble as well. But again, Jeff Green stepped up, too. Christian Braun's defense and Bruce Brown, too, had some timely floaters, which he's made an absolutely trademark of. I think something, again, startled me, and this is before Game 3 even began, Alex, and don't want to make this a rant, but some have been saying, oh, we haven't been paying too much attention to Denver Nuggets. Well, guess what? Since Coach Michael Malone took over the franchise in 2015, there have been incremental improvements with this team. We don't go back to, what, 1998 when the Nuggets only won, what, 11 games and got the number three overall pick, which you probably could have made a very strong case. They could have got the number one overall pick that How year. How do you remember if, that, man? If it hadn't been for Los Angeles Clippers getting Michael Oliver Candy, they could have got Paul Pierce with pick three and said, well, he was too soft as I think his brother talked about too, why the Nuggets didn't pick him with the third overall pick that night in 1998. But again, the whole rebuild of Denver since 2015-16 when Malone came in as coach in that first season to 2016-17. They narrowly missed out the playoffs in 2017-18 on the very last day of the regular season when they lost to the Minnesota Timberwolves for that eighth and final spot. Think about the next leap in 2018-19. They could have made the conference finals that year, the bubble in 2020. Of course, Murray's injury. Yes, they were to have just a little bit of a down peak, but most people don't think in a way that, oh, you take away Murray, you take away Porter last season – and they only, well, finishes the sixth seed and win 48 games itself with Nikola Jokic winning a back-to-back MVP award. That's phenomenal in itself. And having those two back and the bench, which they've always had solid depth on their bench, Denver, since 2017-18. They trade Lyles on their bench, and he was a very handy sixth man for them in those two seasons he produced with the Denver Nuggets. They've had a multitude of other Great role players too. Jeremy Grant stepped up in his only sole season, Denver in 2019-20. They've had those guys that have delivered to complement the starters. And bringing Aaron Gordon was a must at that time for the Nuggets, especially in the West where there have been so many elite small forwards and elite power forwards too to guard. And again, the whole disrespect is just, oh, it's incomprehensible to say the least. And yes, I get it. There are, the majority of the 30 NBA teams are made up of small market teams. What's the rough average percentage? About 80. And yet most of them don't get the coverage they deserve. And we're seeing it yet again, and it is just mind-baffling. So just do a little bit of research. Go back five, six seasons. Go to see where they got to, what the rebuilding process steps they had to undertake to get to where they are. Then watch every single game and playoffs, and you'll see exactly why. And again... Oh, my goodness. I just can't, cannot believe it. Seriously, in all honesty, it's just a joke. Julian, this Lakers-Denver series, um, for the Lakers, a bit surprising that they've been getting a lot of production off the bench unit. And from Austin Reeves, um, who scored 20 points in each game in the series. Anything from the bench unit there you want to talk about? Floor is yours. Uh, not necessarily the bench, and I, I agree they, um Yeah, Hachimura is, I guess, providing something for them off the bench. But I think um, looking at the... The, the series and watching most of the games, I think they just just don't have the right matchups for Denver. I mean, they've got AD and LeBron, and we've got Austin Reeves. I think is he almost in the sh- the small forward position almost? And because mm. he's got when, when he plays with um, D'Angelo Russell and Schroeder on, 
I mean, how can you expect him to go against Michael Porter Jr., Aaron Gordon, and you know even Pope adds something? I, I, I just think that they've they've done well to get this far, and I thought they might have delivered more if they could uh, hold Jokic, but obviously they can't. And I think you know, sadly, I would have preferred seeing a Warriors Nuggets series. That would have probably caused a lot more headaches for the Nuggets. But um, you know, it's it's easy to say this in hindsight now that Nuggets are up three zero, but Lakers just don't have the right matchups for them. Uh, Hachimura has been really interesting too. He's on about six million a year and will be a free agent at the end of the season. He averages twelve and a half for his career, um, and I wonder where he might end up. Um, whether it's returning with the Lakers if they give him a big offer, they've already got a lot of money committed. But he's been solid for them. Um, mm. He's he's been really good. Yuri, I know you wanted to say one more thing very quickly because we got to go to a break and then we'll come back with Alex's secret segment. Yeah, I definitely do think the Lakers should re-sign him up, Alex, too. And he had so much hype heading into the 2018 draft, and he was a ninth overall pick, and it just never really felt as though he was given that opportunity to develop his skill set with the Wizards, and that was sort of one of the disappointments in a way. But since that trade in late January for him to blossom off the bench and to get the full trust of Coach Darvin Ham in crunch time minutes as well, and especially in game one where... That defensive assignment change on him playing on Nikola Jokic, allowing Anthony Davis to roam around the paint and alter or if not emphatically block Nikola Jokic's shot. That was something I think Hachimura, I don't think in a way is known for his defense. And that's the, I think the biggest change to take up on that assignment and to take on arguably one of the biggest challenges yet in guarding Nikola Jokic and making a very steady job of it too. Before we move on, I'm going to, going to give you guys a bit of an ESPN uh, first take, hot take sort of here thing here. But um, the Nuggets are boring. Not the way they play. I think they play the best basketball in the whole entire league by a mile. But they're boring because you know what you're getting from them. They do exactly as expected. Besides that one little stretch in the season, they've been the best team and most consistent team throughout. Sure, they didn't rack up the most wins and... You know, Bucks and Celtics and even the Sixers had more wins than them. But every game, you knew exactly what you're getting from them. Their role players just show up every game, which I don't think I've really seen on a consistent basis like this. Jokic is just like the most ideal employee ever. He shows up. He does beyond what you want in his job. And he always delivers. Murray, who, look, he hasn't delivered at this consistent basis before, but now he is. And, you know, I think... In two weeks, three weeks' time, we might be seeing Jokic lifting up that uh, Larry O'Brien trophy, and we're just going to be like, oh, this is a bit boring because, you know, it's been in front of us the whole time. But what can I say? I bow down to Denver. I have a differing point to offer. You think they're all the same. Michael Porter Jr. had six assists today, which is his career high. He averages usually less than one a game, okay? So there's <laughs> a difference in the playoffs as MPJ's passing the ball. <laughs> That, that is true. He stopped being a ball stopper. So that's the first time in his career. Uh, we'll take a quick break and I'll bring in our next guest uh, on the other side of this. All right, back on the Mojo Recap NBA show. And we have a very special guest with us today. I alluded to him at the top of the show. I would like you, Tom, Julian, Yuri, to welcome the Oracle. Thanks for having me, big fan of the show. Welcome, Oracle. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> He's, um, I don't know if he's played any basketball. He's about 15 foot tall, but I had a quick chat with the Oracle just before um, we got on and he wanted to just contribute three things um, today and uh, go ahead, take it away, Oracle. Kyle Lowry will be a Hall of Famer. Interesting. Mm. 
one ring with Toronto Oracle. I think that's not a terrible call. Any thoughts there? Tom, you were giving him slack earlier in the show. You can you can start us off. <laughs> yeah, no, he will be a Hall of Famer. Um, the the criteria for me is the quicker you have to go to the fact that they won a gold medal, the less likely they are a Hall of Famer. And the reality is, you know, he was an NBA champion with Toronto. He's a six-time uh, All-Star. He made an All-NBA team once uh, back in uh, 2016, but he's arguably Toronto's best player. I mean, DeMar, sure, but DeMar wasn't there for the championship. Um, and for me, what really cemented it was actually the year after Kawhi left when Lowry pretty much took that Celtics team to seven games. And sure, Siakam was there, but he didn't really play to his all-star level. Was Larry was the one. And you can't, I mean, there's so many other players in the Hall of Fame who have not won championships and reached Larry's level. So, yeah, put him in. I think Oracle might be giving us a bit of a soft one. He's uh, sitting at 85% Hall of Fame probability and basketball reference. And the names either side of him are Kyrie Irving, excuse me, and Kawhi Leonard. So, Oracle, I think you can do a little bit better. Caleb Martin will receive a finals MVP vote. Okay, now that's a bit of a hot take. That's Yuri, that's a, Julian, go ahead. That's 85,000 to one. Uh, <laughs> in what world is that going to happen, Oracle? Are you a Miami fan, are you? I like what I like. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, unless, you know, Jimmy fractures his ankle and Martin becomes the, uh, the main man, I cannot see that happening. Anyone else? I think if he plays the 30 minutes and delivers his stellar defense and gives him 15 to 20 points and steps in for offensive charges, definitely believe that he'll get those number of finals MVP votes. I think definitely why he's produced, as we've spoken about throughout the first three series against the Bucks, against the Knicks, and now against the Celtics. Can, a lot, I can't a lot's see why right. can. A lot's got to go right. First, Miami got to beat the Celtics. Sorry, Tom. Then they've got to win the NBA finals. And, I mean, Bam out of Bayou, you think maybe the second best player? <laughs> Oracle knows something we don't know. I'm not really sure what it is. Tom, you got anything left before we ask the Oracle his final question? Assuming it's a Nuggets-Heat matchup, unless unless the Nuggets just can't stop Jimmy unless they go five on one, I, I don't see anyone else but Jimmy winning finals MVP, really. I mean, Bam, I'd give him a 10% chance, but when is, when is the best player on a team never really won finals MVP? I mean, Andre... He just needs votes. He just wanted votes, not to win it. Oh, even votes. I mean, you'd have to have a hell of a performance to get votes. I don't think it's going to happen, Oracle. Okay, Oracle, your first question was a bit of a layup. The second one I liked. What about this last one? Are you going the opposite end of the spectrum? I've read the tea leaves in over 100 million simulations. The San Antonio Spurs will win 56 games next season. Very specific. 56. Now, if I know what Oracle's talking about, I think it's because last time they had the end, the number one pick in the draft. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong, Oracle, but Tim Duncan won 56 games in his rookie year. David Robinson, 56 games in his rookie year. I, I don't know if this is a writer's strike thing, whether they're just reusing the same stories, but 56 is a lot of games. Any thoughts, guys? I don't think so, Alex, too. You have to look back at the Spurs roster when Duncan got drafted in 1997. David Robinson and Sean Elliott missed a considerable portion of games the previous season due to injury. And once they got those two back, the Spurs completely flipped the script in terms of just the exceptional ball movie that they already had under Greg Popovich and the exceptional lineup that they had. I think Avery Johnson was on that team at the time, the little general. Of course, pairing Robinson and Duncan as the Twin Towers caused all sorts of problems for opposing front courts. And again, I think when you look at the Spurs currently, the situation with their roster as it speaks, it's a exceptionally young core that they've got. 
and it's not the veteran-laden depth that the Spurs sides had when David Robinson first got drafted. Not three yet, decades but there's ago. a whole free agency ahead of us. I mean, the Oracle clearly knows something. Um, Greg Popovich maybe doesn't have many years coaching left in him. Uh, maybe he wants to get it pushed further. Does anyone think that? Okay, so the Spurs, we talked to them earlier that they'd be an interesting location for Wemby Nyamba to, to land up. They've got um, rookies like Jeremy Sohan. They've got uh, Mukulishvili comes off the bench sometimes for them. Do they make some moves and can they be a plus 500 team next year? Tom, go ahead. Well, I think they could be potentially a plus 500 team. I mean, it'll be interesting to see exactly what Wemby is like in an NBA environment. He's got to have a target on his back. Team's going to rock going to rock up and want to, you know, put him in his place a little bit. Um, but when you look when you look at a list of number one overall draft picks, you, it's pretty rare that they come into the league straight off the bat with all the hype and actually mm. up to it. I mean, look, Bancaro lived up to the hype, but, I mean, that Orlando team just wasn't good enough to make playoffs. Cade Cunningham played well, but didn't really live up to it. I mean, Edwards, Zion, Aiden, Fultz, Simmons, Pat, Wiggins. Anthony Edwards. Yeah, you go through it all. Like Davis, like Curry. I mean, really, the last time a player like sort of came in the league and made a huge impact straight away was LeBron James. And yes, people are saying Wemby is just as good as when LeBron came in. But, you know, let's see. We haven't seen him in college. And I'm not saying you have to go to college to be shown right, but let's see what he's like in an American system. Julian, I don't think I'd want to pick a five with the Oracle, but if you disagree, that's that's okay. Do you have anything to say? So the Oracles, they'd win 56 games, right? 56. Well, the Nuggets who were first in the West won 53. So, I, I, you know, <laughs> how does that happen? <laughs> uh, mate, look, they, ESPN touted him as the greatest generational talent they've ever seen. I know includes LeBron. They're clearly wrong, but that's what they were saying earlier this week. Uh, NBA is very different to college. Well, uh, it might take time, as Tom said. Okay, Oracle, you're getting a bit of disrespect. Yuri, take us home. Yeah, so I think also what Tom touched upon too with the number one draft picks over the years and they've absolutely set the world alight in their rookie season. The other one too, of course, was Tim Duncan in his first season as at the San Antonio Spurs in the 97-98 season. And pretty sure he was the unanimous rookie of the year that year. And then, of course, a season later, won finals MVP against the New York Knicks. And it's difficult in a way to sort of replicate the hype, of course, from, as Julian mentioned, from the collegiate level all the way through to the pros. And I'm pretty sure it was something to I can't remember exactly one of the players who had an exceptional college career and then it took a little bit of a while straight into the pros as well. Actually, I might just give a little bit of a back example as well. And this is with Paul Pierce after he played three seasons with Kansas from 95 to 98. So he had an exceptional collegiate career at Kansas under coach Roy Williams. And his first season with the Boston Celtics, of course, was that lockout 1999 season. And I think at one point he mentioned that the Celtics lost, I think it was nine straight games at that point because Boston at that time was in a rebuild. And for most players who have been under a winning collegiate system, doesn't matter whether you've been at Duke, North Carolina, even at Florida, where, of course, with Al Horford, Joe Kim Noah and Corey Brewer play together under coach Billy Donovan, it always takes a while, especially when you're drafted as, say, a number one overall pick, number two pick, number three pick, as Jason Kidd witnessed firsthand back in 1994. You don't tend to win games right away because the side is exceptionally young and they're inexperienced compared to some of those other top veteran heavy laden teams who've been in the playoffs countless times. So in a way, that's sort of my example in terms of what may happen next season for Victor Webb and Yama. But 
yet again, you only have to look maybe a season later and they get back into the playoffs. Like what Vince Carter witnessed with the Toronto Raptors in his rookie season, 1999. They bring in veteran guys such as Charles Oakley, Antonio Davis, Kevin Willis, and it changes the whole culture of the Toronto Raptors. So the Spurs can go down that path and bring in seasoned veterans who've been in the playoffs numerous times and lean on that support to get to the next stage of where the Spurs want to get to. And, of course, they've tasted that playoff success for as long as we can remember. It's always sad when we get to this part of the show because I feel like I've been talking basketball for 10 minutes. And yet here we are a full hour in and we have to say goodbye. Um, Next time you hear from us, it'll be probably post-game six if either of these series make it game six. Sorry again, Tom. There's the shutter in his office. He didn't want to hear me say that. Uh, But we'll be back same time next week. Potentially, we've got a second show coming uh, midweek over the next couple of weeks as well. Um, As always, you can find us at the links we plug in our descriptions everywhere. Yuri and Julian, you'll be hosting or at least being on the panel for a second AFL show on the Mojo Sports Network. Am I right? Yes, that's correct. And really looking forward to it again and to be able to have the opportunity. I just can't believe it. Julian, go ahead. Yeah, no, looking forward to talking AFL, but obviously NBA, super exciting as well at the moment. Tom, what do you got coming out this week? Uh, I'm currently looking at deserted places in the woods that I can go and hide out. <laughs> uh, How's that least... trade Jimmy Butler article coming? Exactly, exactly. For at least a few months. But no, I'll have an AFL article up and. Uh, Maybe maybe I'll uh, write a Celtics article to sort of get my uh, use it as a term as a form of therapy. You should pick another team like Indiana. Just write an article on somebody completely free of your brain space and and recover. Uh, that's a really good segue because the four of us have an article coming out in the NBA Live app. It's called Four on Three. We get three interesting topics and we give our opinions on it. Ah, and as always, we'll be here this time next week to talk about more fantastic NBA action. Lads, thank you very much and goodbye. Say goodbye to the Oracle. We, he's still here. We didn't say goodbye to him. Goodbye, Mr. Oracle. See you, mate. Thank See you, mate. Bye, Oracle. Thanks again for the opportunity. And thank you for sticking all the way through another episode of the NBA Recap Show. If you're still here, please consider following us on Instagram at Mojo Stateside or Mojo Sports Network. Leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast, but most importantly, enjoy your day. We'll see you next week.